Welcome to Broken Office Chair, a new podcast produced by Alternatives, a Chicago-based nonprofit. Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives' Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. Bessie is a Chicago native and first-generation Salvadorian Mexican-American who's passionate about dismantling systemic racism. In each episode, Bessie will be joined by her friends and colleagues who are ready to talk frankly about the most important issues facing the nonprofit sector. A quick listener note, this episode contains language that may not be appropriate for younger listeners. For more information, check out the show's description. This week, Bessie is joined by Ozzy Godinez, a former board member here at Alternatives. Ozzy's personal industry experience and in-depth knowledge of consumer market trends led him to believe that there is a better way to approach Latinx marketing. So, in 2006, he and Pablo Acosta founded Paco Relations, now known as Paco Collective, a full-service cross-cultural agency. In today's episode, Bessie and Ozzy cover performative activism, what genuine DEI looks like, social change and how it influences marketing strategies, Gen Z's emergence in the workforce, and empowering people of color in leadership. Thank you for joining me, Ozzy. Today we are talking about how racial equity initiatives have caused harm. But to kick it off, why don't we start off by you telling us a little bit about Paco and how you ended up co-founding the place. Sure. So I am the CEO and co-founder of Paco. We've been around for 16 years now. I started the agency and when we started with my business partner, one of the things that we saw in the marketplace was and it was particularly related to Hispanic marketing. And so the stereotypes that you would see in advertising in most spots at the time, this was in the early 90s, not date myself a little bit <laughs> I here, was about to say mid, that. Mid, mid, mid 90s, where you saw and you still see it sometimes, which is really just annoying and disturbing and angry. I get angry at the same time. Where you see the abuelita, you know, the mama, the kids in the kitchen with these mariachi and sombreros, assuming that all Latinos in the U.S. are Mexican, right? So, so it really started with with that and seeing <clears throat> the sort of non genuine marketing and advertising that was out there. So, Paul and I started the agency to really rethink how you market to consumers in general, particularly the U.S. Hispanic consumer, because that was going to be our focus. We did that for several years and grew the agency from Pablo and I, two people, to now we're going to be probably fifty plus by the end of this year. And really also shifted our focus from just doing Hispanic marketing to a total market approach or a an approach that targeted all segments. Total market also has a whole other sort of baggage meaning to it. But really our focus really was on diverse markets and continues to be on diverse markets. So we're talking about Latino, we're talking about Black, Asian, and a slew of other <clears throat> excuse me, ethnicities that we do a lot of work for. What has happened over the last <clears throat> three years primarily, and I know we're going to get into this, but really the shift in terms of really talking about this idea of equity within marketing, within messaging, and then within even within organizations, right? And we spent a lot of time over the last three years, and particularly this last year, doing quite a bit of work on diversity, equity, inclusion, and sort of like, what does that actually mean from a marketing lens, right? Thinking about how we put messages out there that resonate with these diverse audiences, right? And being inclusive. To that end, our focus shifted to inclusive marketing, which is what we do 
today. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, right? Because you were founded on this very concept of inclusivity and accurate representation. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I want to talk a little bit about that in particular right now. Like, what does it mean to you? This is personal to you. Right. Why is this personal to you? What does it mean to you to see accurate representation? It's personal because it's not fair, <laughs> right? In, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways to date. But how does that my, impact, right? Right. So I think the idea of and why it's, it's personal is because we see, we, so as a person of color, you've grown up ex- with all of these experiences, right? right. So you're, you're, our lens, right? Through the, the lens that we see the world is very different that someone was, that, than someone who was raised in Winnetka their entire life, as an example, nothing against Winnetka, but as an example, right? So the experiences that I've had are going to be just, I mean, disproportionately different in terms of my upbringing and why it's personal is because, you know, we've, I've experienced it throughout my entire life, sort of these obstacles, this, the idea of institutionalized racism, where you see it like firsthand at school, I mean, across the board, right? Jobs where, you know, you could have the job or were qualified, but you didn't because you have maybe you had a little bit of an accent mm-hmm. or you didn't even get the interview because of your last name mm-hmm. or so had a lot of that happen. Fortunately, and this is a sidetrack, I've had some awesome champions that have pushed me along the way, which really sort of helped me navigate all of this. It's personal to me that way because I've always, we've always experienced this idea of the inequalities that have existed throughout, you know, our generation. And I think the bigger part of this is like, what do we have to do, right, to like shift this to the extent that we can moving forward, knowing what we know now, which is a monumental freaking task. I recognize that. But if I can do my part with this idea of inclusive marketing, ensuring that my team is built to represent the markets we serve. In other words, if you look at our agency and it's not... We're still working on this. It's a work in progress, but you have to be really intentional. And that is building the the most inclusive team that we can. People that bring different perspectives on the same issues, right? And it's not just about gender mm-hmm. uh, it's, or ethnicity. It's everything under the sun, right? When you think about this idea of being inclusive, right? And so we've still got a lot of work to do, but our, in terms of value and w- what we bring to the table as an agency and which leads back to to your to your question is ensuring that we're we're built to really talk about this these conversations in a real meaningful like legit way it's not bullshit right because we've all experienced this and it sometimes having to have difficult conversations with some clients and some certain things that they want to do and this is why you can't do that right you know to date it's been it's been the last 3 years we've seen a lot more interest in the type of work that we do I think you, we've had this conversation a little bit. We're going to mm-hmm. delve into it now, but sort of what the impetus for that was and how we got to this place. Yeah. And so what we talked about was this increase from the public to see loosely more equity right, right, from right. businesses. So after George Floyd was killed, we saw this uptick in demand for first the statement. Every company released that. <laughs> A statement. The same statement. The same statement talking about the impact yes. of his death, right? right? Right. And what you and I talked about is that black men being killed by the police has been happening since the beginning of time. Right. But there's something about this moment right. in which people were listening and demanding, right? And I'm putting this in quotations right now, demanding that 
companies show up in a way for people of color, black people specifically in this conversation, right? What has happened in the marketing, like what, yeah, what's the impact on yeah. the marketing world? That's a great question. And one that gets me a little, I get a little angry about this one because it's sad at the same time, because the impetus for all of this change mm -hmm. was the murder of this black man, right? I think why this black man, that's a, I think there's a, loaded sort of conversation we can have on that I think was the visceral reaction of watching the police literally take the last breath out of this mm -hmm. man you know I think led to just this visceral then response right so what happened in the marketing world was that happens as sad as it is right then you have all of these big time marketing companies big top marketers in in the world particularly in the U.S. demand that their marketing partners be more inclusive, right? Have representation, especially some of the bigger holding companies. You're having the majority of folks creating ads for black and brown folks are predominantly white. I mean, just the way it is, especially at some of the larger agencies. And so what you've had is this reaction by marketers to demand that their agents, agencies be more inclusive, be more or have equal representation. And so agents, a lot of agencies were like, oh, shit, we have a room full of white men and women, mostly men sometimes, and have very little, you know, people of color in these rooms creating some of the work that targets these particular folks, right? Mm -hmm. So that in itself, like, that's fine. Like, that's great that you needed to do that. Why you would wait till this murder is another question to actually do what's right. Mm -hmm. Which really pisses me off. And now that, that there's dollars. Now that lives. there's, exactly. And you're being called out because your boardroom and your upper leadership team looks like, you know, it's all white. That was really interesting. The, the other part, and on, on that is all of these brands also had the opportunity to hire agencies like us, right? Where we've been doing this since our inception. It's, mm -hmm. It wasn't like we needed to create a checkbox on now we have a diversity, equity, inclusion plan. It was, it's part of our DNA. Like, I don't have to say that because it's who we are. And yet you see, you see tons of agents every single agency for the most part that was sort of non-diverse create these statements put these programs in place all of a sudden to to hire more you know black and brown folks essentially hire equity officers the chief equity, equity officer now everyone has one and so we published some work on that just an article on look well, there's agencies out there like us. Why not just hire us instead of forcing your, you should have forced your agency to do that. But like we exist, like we're already here. You can hire us. And we actually probably have a, a stronger, more genuine line of sight into this particularly black, black and brown folks than most other agencies, because we are right. That's what we do. And the makeup of the teams is, is also super diverse, right? So so it lets to some really mixed feelings, angry feelings. And so, yeah, it was, and it's still going on to this day. You said something really interesting, right? You said, why not hire us? We probably have a more genuine equity approach, right? Right. 
do you think your like the part the businesses out there who are hiring marketing firms are looking for a more genuine marketing approach? That's a that's a great question. I think that that has shifted. The the answer is yeah, I'm seeing it yes now finally, which is great because we're getting now some interesting just opportunities to do some work that we would probably have never done, right? And so I think there is in genuine interest in in having genuine conversations, you know, to to historically underserved communities, right? So, you know, we're seeing, is it happening at a sort of a mass scale? Absolutely not. I mean, I think you're still seeing marketers who are, who are kind of afraid, but I, and, and just simply are not going to, to go down that road or even taking a stance on anything, right? They want to be sort of neutral and, and, and we know that neutral means a whole other layer of just BS that comes with that. We are starting to see some genuine traction, which is good. There's some brands that are actually really leading the charge in this, and that's really good to see. And yeah, I mean, I, th I think th there is a little bit to the extent that I would want it. Bessie, absolutely not. Like, it's not where it should be, no. Yeah, and I ask because I think a lot of times when we think about equity, right, we're thinking about increased representation. Right. And we're thinking about the statement of equity right and we're thinking about some sort of like you said an equity plan that has a couple of workshops on how to deal with how to recognize your own privilege and how to right. and again in quotations how to be anti-racist and so everybody read the book when george floyd was killed right and that's it we don't get past that right, right. <laughs> to some people who may be listening they're like okay well what more is there when you're talking about equity how, what else would you add to those things when we're talking about equity and marketing specifically? Yeah, I think that's a great question because marketing is one component of it. The other big, big part of it is to have that equity, that representation internally within, you know, some of these companies that we work with, meaning the CMOs, the brand managers are, or have represent, there's representation in, in that sort of level. I think the, the thing that oftentimes, and we saw this right after, and you mentioned it earlier, is we saw that this idea of diversity, equity, inclusion was a freaking HR issue. Like it immediately went to HR, like mm -hmm. that those roles fall within HR, but diversity, equity, inclusion is not an HR function. Right. Maybe someone who manages, manages it, but that is an entire organizational sort of commitment that someone needs to make. And so to answer your question, I mean, I think it's got to be organizational. It can't be just one role or the token role where that right. we see consistently mm -hmm. to appease the masses and have, again, like we check the checkbox. We got our chief diversity officer and they're responsible for, not, I mean, and then, and then, and then put see, and this is how messed up that particular issue is. You're putting that onus on one person too, right? Like how, how just naive and asinine is that? Like it's got to be complete buy-in from the top, and it's not one per one person can manage the functions of it, but that's an organizational commitment, and that's really, really hard for for some of these big companies, almost impossible, honestly. One of these, I'm saying this very sarcastically, one of the fun things I've seen since, you know, this increase for demand for equity has been all of these announcements hiring people of color into leadership positions, right? Which, first of all, this tells me you could have been doing this all along, right? You right. now decided that was important. Correct. And then the second piece that shows up for me every time I see it is, are you set up to be supportive 
of an employee who may be the first or, you know, a first person of color or who may be one of a few. Yeah. Or maybe the first person in leadership. Yeah. Do you know how to properly support this individual in your workplace? And what does that look like? And what kind of emotional labor are you asking this person to take on? Yeah. And I say this because I have friends who are like rotating in and out of positions that are not properly supporting them and who are probably being seen as problematic. Yes. But the issues within the culture that's not being addressed yet. Yes. Yeah. There, that's a great, another great point. I mean, and that one's really hard because we're seeing a lot of people of color, color in those leadership roles for the very first time. Right. Mm -hmm. So to your point, there is really no structure of support other than allyship outside of that organization, friends and family that perhaps we have. There's very little in terms of structure because they don't know organizationally how to even support someone like that who's the first person in a chief diversity role that has no idea what they're actually something's actually walking into right because of just the 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 culture that probably already exists that's almost impossible sometimes to actually change and so we and you're right where you're seeing just a rotating musical chair sometimes mm -hmm. within these positions and it's sad. And, and that one actually is really much harder to, to solve because there's got to be sort of a much larger commitment to to that role and its functions within the organization and, the, and the, how you're going to support that role from the very top. And, you know, I keep saying from the very top because it's got to come from that. Otherwise, it kind of, it's really hard to do it from the bottom up. It generally, it doesn't work. And so, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you because I see the same. I've, I've seen it. And it's sad. You know, we see people super super successful, like incredibly successful in their previous roles, going to some of these big high profile positions and within a year they're gone because they couldn't, they, it's not that they couldn't do their job. Most of it revolves around the support that you mentioned and then they couldn't break through the culture. Right. Like they want to change, but they really don't want to change. Yes. I had, I was so thankful. I had an interview a few years ago when I was applying for this one and it was an all white leadership team. Okay. And I posed specifically to the recruiter this question <clears throat> about, can this team have these conversations? Right. Are they ready to make the changes? And what she said to me, and I'm always going to appreciate her for being honest. So she's like, they say this is what they want, <laughs> but they're probably not where you would like them to be. So if that's the thing that you're looking for, this may not be a good fit. I was right. like, thanks for not letting me walk into this shit. Th that's right. That That's a good recruiter. So <laughs> yes. because that could have been disastrous for you. So when we talk about support, it comes up for me in two different ways, right? It comes up for me in terms of the external work climate. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But first, I want to get to what happens with that person internally. This is one of our favorite topics that we talk about, because you said something that was really important earlier when we were talking about communities. And you said, what did you say? That you used the word excluded. Yeah, historically excluded. Historically excluded. That's what you said, right? Yeah. And so when you're a person who's part of a community that has been historically excluded and you get to this top level position, what happens internally? That's one of the things we have to support, right? In leadership. Yeah, that, so I'll give you my sort of perspective on what I think happens. So we've talked about this. <laughs> I still struggle with it, right? I uh -huh. still struggle with it. I think it's gotten better. I always, and I don't, 
this is probably a different podcast because I know we talked about this, but like there are times that we don't feel like you belong in the room mm-hmm. when I know I belong in the freaking room. And this is why I want to dip back to this, this historically excluded yep. phrase that you used, because a lot of times when we talk about imposter syndrome, yeah. right? One of the <clears throat> best explanations I heard of it, right? Because you feel like you don't belong. Right. And so it, it puts the ownership on you, but the actual issue is environments are telling you. You don't belong. Exactly. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And so I think. But then it becomes. It's part of your narrative. Well, yes, it, Exactly. Right? Like, this is, to me, it's still wild sometimes that, like, uh, my parents are immigrants, and I grew up watching, my mom's a housekeeper, and I've, I've talked about this, and, like, I've grown up watching them struggle so much to get me to where I'm at, that, to me, it's still amazing that I have access to some of the rooms that I have access to, that I can sit here and pay repair on the house and still go on vacation next month. Like, these things are such amazing privileges yeah. that I've never dreamed of right and so or I dreamt, dreamt about didn't think it was possible and so yeah th- this becomes your internal narrative like do I belong here am I gonna be is this gonna be taken from me right am I gonna fuck it up right and not just for me but for everybody for everybody who comes, who comes to, yeah I mean I, I have these daily struggles <laughs> with my own sort of like the the agency walking into the door and having like you know a team of like 40 that sort of look at you as as the leader and sometimes you feel sort of inept right because you've sort that's sort of been part of what you've been told all along right it's kind of the environment you become the environment sometimes Mm -hmm. you know i think like you my parents immigrant parents right my dad was a delivery driver landscaper like kind of jack of all trades recently retired my mom still works in a factory Mm -hmm. packing ham She's going to retire this year, thank God. And so it's funny, I didn't even know that I was poor to somebody kind of told you you were poor. Mm-hmm. I've, I've had this conversation, like, growing up, like, you know, it was, uh, was one two-bedroom apartment in an 106 in Langley in the south side of Chicago. And, you know, we always had what food, like, all the things. You, have, just, what you, need, right? you have what you need, and you never realize you're poor until somebody calls it out. I or, thought I was middle class. Or, yeah, <laughs> or years later, we're like, holy crap, we were poor, but your parents... Thank God, it never made you feel like you were poor. And so, I, so I think, and I think we can speak honestly about that part. The way kind of I got through it and still get through it is one is that the and I, this is so cliche, but I can't. There's no other way to say it, is the ethic that the the integrity in the work ethic that my parents placed on me, like early on. So that that never sort of goes away. I think the other part for me that I've learned along the way in doing what we do is that I, I'm an immigrant in this country, speak two languages. I do, you know, we have an inclusive marketing agency. I have something that is really, really powerful in terms of intellectual property, right? Clients not, and I realizing this like most very recently, like, this isn't, like, something that I've been sort of, that has been in my mind for a long time. Mm-hmm. But it's it's that, un- I still have that fear of walking into a room full of white people. It always happens. But I also now have this sort of superpower in embracing the different and the differences that are me. Because there's value in that. I tell my girls that all all the time. Don't let anyone take your superpower. Your superpower is you're a girl, you're Latina, you're empowered, 
you're brown, you speak two languages, you're amazing and don't let anyone take that shit away from you, right? Um, especially girls, man, especially girls. And so there's value in that, like recognizing our own value and our contributions in what we physically do as an agency is super powerful. I think, and, and clearly, you know, I think I have an advantage because of what we do, but I think in most people's, and I did a, a there was a chat a while ago on, on this and talked about, and this was in particular to Latinos, and, and I talked about this idea of the, the superpower that you actually have that we need to em embrace and be sort of more vocal about that. Traditionally, we're not, right? But, you know, for me, it's still really hard, but there's, I've taught myself to self-diagnose myself, which I do. I can diagnose you next time. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> but like, like thinking of the value that, that we actually bring and owning that in a way that's, that's real and genuine and like just bringing that to the table. And that to me is a little bit of a game, game changer. I think, and it's really hard to get there. Again, I still struggle with it, but, but it absolutely... It absolutely helps. It's just recognizing your own abilities, your own power, and the ability to actually facilitate some change. So I bring this thing up, though, because I think that when you put a person of color, when you bring a person of color into a workplace, and particularly when you put them in positions of leadership, this is an additional narrative that mm -hmm. you have to be aware of if you're trying to create an environment of support, right? Right. So... What does that actually look like? And so, does this mean you have to spend a little bit more time with this person? Does this mean you have to hype this person up a little bit more? Do you, can you talk about mistakes in a room full of white people? It's the same way you can talk about it with a white employee, right? Like It's interesting that you say that because we recently, someone made a comment about at the agency feeling excluded because we spoke Spanish. And so it was an interesting sort of situation where, okay, we're an inclusive marketing agency. We should be as inclusive as possible. Some people feel super comfortable and do it without really thinking. I do it all the time. Like I do this all the time when we go to restaurants, like if, you know, cause I know 90% of the workers there, you know, are primarily Latino and you're going to, mm -hmm. I always just default to Spanish. And, and we do that here because there's some folks who just speaks, not just, but just feel comfortable and we naturally do that. And so, so that person made a comment about that. And I, I just, I, this happened very recently, by the way. I see, so understanding, okay, you're really putting yourself in that person's shoes. Because I think a large part of being sort of an ally and supporting folks in these roles is putting yourself clearly in their shoes. To the extent that we can, it's very hard sometimes, but put, putting yourself in their shoes and really understanding how for us, as an example, in that situation, in an open setting, there was a lot of people, a lot of folks were speaking Spanish and we made this person felt exclusive or excluded. And it wasn't clearly, it wasn't intentional, mm -hmm. but it happened, right? And so it's just, you know, addressing that directly first and foremost and understanding, having some cultural competency on, on the idea that we as Latinos, obviously, sometimes we default to that, specifically those that prefer or are more comfortable in Spanish. And then also understanding the other person and the other side and how they felt excluded. You know, there's kind of a happy medium in there sometimes. But it really, and it's, that's a really small example of that really puts, like, you 
like I thought like I had all the answers and sometimes you really don't, right. you don't like shit. Like I, we don't want to make that person feel excluded. Like you feel bad, right? Mm -hmm. You feel bad because it's not the intention. And so, you know, then I'm catching myself after that in every, like we're out when socially here and I'm saying stuff in Spanish and right after in English. <laughs> So that I'm doing both. Not a bad practice, though. It's not a bad practice, but like being the thing is being really self-aware about that. Like mm -hmm. we hear that term all the time; it's really hard. But like being self-aware when you're in those situations, yeah. So I talk about this at work from like the perspective of anti-racism being a practice, mm -hmm. kind of like yoga. Right. You just you have to practice it every day. You get you're never you're just not going to become. Right. It's not like you become anti-racist one day and you're done. Like, it's not that. Right. And so it's, and then with that being a practice, there's days that you're better at it than others. Yeah. And there's days that you fuck up and you just gotta have to suck it up that you fucked up right. and apologize. Exactly. And do better. Yeah, I mean, I think, right, there's the idea that there's sort of purity and that is like, there's, I mean, it's, it's a work in progress always for, at least for me, and I think I see that for a lot of people. You know, we, we were in a, in a meeting with a client that humongous client that had all of these words that are sort of now off the table because we want to be more inclusive. And there are words in there, Bessie, that I use constantly. I had no idea like that they were, that we really shouldn't be using. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you one. You know, we talk about this when we do some, some, some of the work that we do in terms of figuring out where a brand has some potential for growth. We call it the white space where you can no longer say white space there's also like all hands on deck we can't say all hands on deck oh like, i didn't know that one. <laughs> yes because what if someone doesn't physically doesn't have that can't, can't function right with with their hands so like all of these things and these are just happening i think in real time too so mm -hmm. there's you know there's got to be some some time to sort of adapt these to to an organization and and sort of the terminology that that you use all that to say to your point is like, there's a lot of work that sort of still needs to be done and no one's sort of has figured this out. I think there's just, a, there's been tremendous amount of work done. We still have a lot of ways to go clearly, but yeah, sometimes I feel like, <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> dang it. I, but you know what? There's now, at least for the nonprofit sector, there's a little bit of research around what it means to be a person of color. Yeah. That's and good. And doing this type of work. Right. Because we don't get to stop being brown and leave the office and just enjoy life without microaggressions ever or you right. know you you get to be brown all the, all the time. time yep and then as part of your job you're taking on DEI work right and that emotional toll is very real yes and especially in the work that you do Exactly. And that, again, goes to another layer of support that you may see with your employee. You may see faster burnout rates. You may see more frustration. You may see more anger. It's very easy to objectively talk about something that doesn't impact you in the same way that it impacts a person of color, right? And so going back to that original point, that within itself can create all these other, what shows up as problems and quotations in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. The, the impact of of exactly what you said and we've seen it in other organizations is the the burnout of folks yeah the emotional toll and then the the just the mental capacity for all of this sort of at once right because your point you don't 
you don't turn off I don't turn off being Mexican when I leave here right mm -hmm. I'm, I'm I'm like that 24 hours a day right <laughs> and so so the it's and it's interesting because and I don't even know that we know and maybe you do right the full impact of what actually happens in these roles, right? Because you see higher, higher burnout. I don't know if people are drinking more. I probably would, <laughs> but like the, the sort of impact personally and just impact overall professionally on something like that, because first is the sort of the amount of trauma that you see, particularly in the roles and the types of the work that you guys do restorative justice, right? Mm -hmm. So just thinking through what that means and the toll that that takes on a person of color during the work day, right? Mm -hmm. You leave the work day, you still have, you know, the last eight hours in your head of what you just sort mm -hmm. of managed. And then, you know, you're going about your daily life, but you still have that sort of wane. It's got to be really freaking tough. I mean, because th there's not a, there isn't a, and you've asked this throughout different, there's not really a support system per se that's built to be able to sort of, sort of manage that that kind of that kind of work setting, the kind of trauma, it's almost like PTSD when you think about it, that you have after. I know there's a lot of networks that you can build to help the, you know, your and have your support system, but like that one is really, really hard. And I think, you know, there's a bigger sort of environmental impact on, on people, I think longer term. But I, you know, I've always said there's like folks that do that are like God's that's God's I mean, like doing the type of work that you know, you're in the communities in these really high need areas, really making an impact. It's like phenomenal work, but it's also like heartbreaking, really tough. You know this. I mean, I'm just pre preaching to the choir here. You know the work that your team does. Yes. So it's really interesting. I think from during this pandemic, we quickly forgot that teachers and mental health workers are people who are serving while dealing with their own shit, right? And yeah. it's a thing that I bring up when we talk about diversifying, and I keep going to this point, right? We had to approach this thing where our staff is majority people of color, right? So we didn't have to diversify just because of right. right? We were already yep. there. But when the pandemic hit, our staff are people of color. And with that comes, you know, potentially, you know, people who've been historically excluded, right? From a different setting. So with that came partners that lost their job or part or family members that work in high risk situations because they were essential workers. Our staff were essential workers, right, right? Right. People who were already living check to check and now were concerned about their job, people who lost their childcare, people whose kids were not going into schools and did not have any additional support. And so we're pivoting to respond to this pandemic. Meanwhile, the majority of my staff identified as having their mental health impacted while trying to provide service. And so we were able to, and continue, right, to pivot as much as we can to provide support to the unique challenges that come with the fact that you are a black and brown employee, you have all these other things going on at home and you have to deliver services. And now this black man was very publicly murdered in a way that impacts you, right? Yeah. And trying to, and we could have those conversations. I can't imagine having to experience all of this and then showing up to my job in white corporate America every day. I have friends who did not go to work. They just did not go to work for like a week. They called off because yes. they were like, I'm, I can't do this. Right. 
Yeah, we saw a lot of that. But yeah, I, yes, I think the, and it's interesting because you see the impact manifests itself on the, in a lot of different ways, different ways for a lot of different folks. And I think it was it, that to me still, and we talk about it sometimes here at the agency is I, and it's so weird because I think that there's this really intense, like white guilt. I felt like that happened almost instantly. <laughs> and you had, like we all do very great friends of all colors, right? Lab white friends. And so it was, it was awkward. <laughs> I don't know if you experienced some of that. It was a little awkward. It was, uh, it, it was, it was weird. I fortunately did not experience the awkwardness as much as directly. I experienced a lot of friends experiencing awkwardness with other friends. I'm trying to mediate that. Oh, interesting. I think with our staff, some of our white staff felt a little bit more awkward, but I didn't deal with any of it directly. Yeah, we you know, internally we have a very super progressive team, so it wasn't here; it was outside of of work that I had some interesting sort of interactions where you could see. I may also just be blocking it out. <laughs> that was a really rough period. <laughs> it was a really rough, really rough period, actually, when you think about it. But yeah, it's yeah. you know you started to talk off the podcast you started yeah. to talk about the great resignation and i said leave that for the podcast yep. but i wanted to bring it back in right now because okay. a lot of people think about the great resignation as just employees hopping for a better job or yeah. better pay what's your take on that i think there certainly is some of that yeah. right because we we're seeing we're being impacted by that but i think the also i think the pandemic and all of like what has happened over the last three years. Mm-hmm. I think has also shed light, not shed light, I mean, how do I say this? I think folks took some time to really reprioritize their lives and what was of value or more important and prioritize things that perhaps they wouldn't have in a different scenario. You know, I think the pandemic made the world also really, really small in a lot of ways. We saw folks like just sort of leave their urban dwellings for all of these other areas all over the U.S. and the world, quite frankly, to do work that they that they want to do, right? I just, you know, it, I think people just need it. And I don't know, had it not been for any of this, would this, like, would this have happened naturally? Probably not, right? The pandemic really fueled this isolation at home that fueled conversations about just their true sort of meaning and what they want to do. Like that happened a lot. People learned how to make banana bread. Everyone. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> I, did, I got bread. really busy actually. Right. Well, you guys were really, yeah. really busy, but you know, yeah, I, it, there's just different takes on that. I, I, I don't wonder, know. though with the Gen Z coming into the workplace, yeah. they probably, I think it would have happened anyway. Maybe. And so that's why I bring it up in the context of this conversation. There was some really interesting research around Black employees in particular, and I don't have those stats offhand, but one of the reasons some were not coming back into the office was it was nice to be away from all the microaggressions yeah, you're, the day yes. to day work. And so you... I feel like the great resignation is in part fueled by how toxic we've always accepted our work conditions to be. And now we're like, actually, they don't have to be that way. That's right. Great, great point. I read, probably read the same article you did on that because I remember reading that and it was like, I didn't, hadn't thought about it that way, honestly, but then. I feel I, like the article did not get enough traction. It did not. I agree with you, but it was a great article on on that. And, and obviously people of color, like, 
hell, I don't need, to, I don't want to go back to the office actually, exactly for, for that reason. You don't have to relive those, those microaggressions on a daily basis. So there's a lot of truth to that. I think it, it re helped people sort of refocus and reevaluate their purpose. You know, we're on a hybrid model. I think it works for us. I think a lot of companies are going to be that way. I don't think anyone's going to go back to the office anytime soon. We'll see. Some banks are talking about it already. Yeah. No. Banks are historically predominantly white. white. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes for them. But I think what you'll see, though, is you're going to see people leave, like go to other industries where they're going to have just a better work-life balance, a better culture overall. I think there's more demand on workplaces to be more balanced in general. For, oh, for sure. One of my other guests, Ayoka, we talked about coming into the workforce. We were still old enough to have come in pre that 2012 recession. The recession, yeah. And you still had people and there was the concept of paying your dues and like oh, yeah. you don't get promoted without that and work-life right. balance. What is that? That You don't get that. You just came into the workforce. You get your week vacation. <laughs> right. And that was like acceptable and right. that's just not okay anymore. Right. And people don't realize that that is also not accepting of different lifestyles and family choices and things like that. And so it just doesn't work in the same conversation today. It doesn't. It doesn't apply. The, I was going to say something on that. It's interesting when you talk about, because I thought you were going to say people were still showing up in suits and ties, and they were. You know, oh, God. To, I've, into I've, the office. I haven't done I that was, in years. <laughs> like, with dresses. Yeah, so, so, and I think some of these, I'm, I call them kids, like, we'll never know what that actually, you know, feels like. But I think there's there's this reimagining of this concept of work for sure moving forward. Like there's, it is completely going to be, I think, revolutionized. And if we got a, I think it went on hyperdrive during the, the pandemic because we had to. But employees just simply aren't going to settle for for that type of stuff. Maybe some will, but I think there's just going to be more. And there are more companies who are seeing sort of the value and the balance of that. And, and, and honestly, technology has allowed for most industries to be able to function completely remote. Mm -hmm. So, you know, instead of opening offices, you know, save that money and give bonuses or raises or whatever, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. like there's, again, a lot of companies are doing that. You know, for, for our industry, I think there's some value in having folks in a room and brainstorming on stuff. You can, there's, you know, we, we do have Zoom and Teams and all that stuff, but our culture... We have a very strong family culture still. Very people of color, very Latino, right? And so... Yeah, share a meal together. We share a meal together, exactly. We do all of those things. We have a chef, as you know, twice a week, feeds our team. But that's I'm really... I want to work here. <laughs> but that's really, like, those things are really important to us. And those are things are really important also as an employer, right? To be able to provide. And, and I, <clears throat> we were talking about this before we got on the recorded podcast is happy employees, you know, Mm -hmm. scientifically proven, right? Produce better work. And so if you create an environment where that, that happens, then you'll be successful. It's never, it's not always easy. There's a lot of challenges, right? We talked a lot, a lot about that, but it's not impossible. Part of what you and I have talked about before is like, so it's, it's the lifespan of an employee, right? It begins, people don't think about this, employers too. Our, our relationship with employees begins at the moment we posted the job description. That is somebody's, a lot of times, first introduction into us, right? right? And then it carries all the way through. And so part of what you and I started talking about is like, when we're talking about, again, supporting people of color into these positions, 
what is done, what can we do from the very beginning to set up people for success and carrying them through? Yeah, I think that's an interesting sort of way of phrasing that because I think you're right. It all starts with the job description. I think even the way you write a freaking job description is critically important mm -hmm. to, to a potential employee <clears throat> in terms of obviously providing a synopsis or summary of what the role is, right? Being intentional about diversity inclusion without being so sort of stereotypical in terms of the, the job description. We see that all the time, by the way. Mm -hmm. There's ways where you can write that stuff that's mm -hmm. more genuine and, and organic. I think the other thing that's really important is, and we do this pretty consistently, is ensuring that the interview process, they're also talking to, to folks of just different backgrounds and ethnicities. So that's really important to us. So it's not just, just talking about it, right? It is there. And I think organizations should do this across the board, right? Ensuring that they're talking to multiple folks within the organization, not necessarily also that person that you're going to report to, right? But other folks in, in a company. And then I think the other part is, and this one is, is really something we spent a lot of time, we're spending more time on actually. And that is when somebody gets hired, right? And they're in the door, ensuring that one, you have obviously all the process and protocol that, that they need to understand, but also what is a, the growth plan, right? How do you take a person from this particular role to the next role? Sort of like the progression of, the, of their job. That's in it is like, that's really, really important. I think for retention and for folks to see themselves sort of in the next role and what things they need to do to get there, you know, for where it's very inclusive agency in terms of the staff. So, you know, ensuring that, I was going to call it sort of a buddy system or providing a mentor or a shadow or whatever the term is where, you know, they, they feel like empowered and, and also if something happens, like I have someone to talk to in terms of a support system that necessar doesn't necessarily need to be HR, right? It could be right. someone else, mm -hmm. like ensuring that you have those things in place. And it, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's easier for a smaller organization to do that because seeing a bigger you know, organization might be harder to do, but it's not impossible, right? I think, it, especially for, for, you know, those people of color, most of us, right? We want to see ourselves, you know, in five years and what does that look like, right? Mm -hmm. And and in it it is way more impactful if that person is also of color, right? Like, because you could, you could identify there's so many things that make it more real from that standpoint. So, so yeah, I mean, those are sort of some of the general things there's some really specific things within that. Again, you know, we have the flexibility as a smaller agency, like we can do this kind of stuff pretty easily and fast, not successfully because we struggle with all of it. everything that I mentioned today, we still struggle with, right? We're not perfect, but we can do it. I think, you know, some of the bigger organizations, sometimes I think just organizationally how they're set up and this is the way we're sort of meant to do things. I feel like it's a priority thing, though. Yeah. You have to prioritize this in the same way. I want to take through what you just said and name where there's equity pieces in it, because yep. I think you just talk assuming people hear the equity yeah, pieces. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's, built it's into, the agency. Yes, yeah, I know. It's built into the agency. And so you, you started with the job description, right? And so you talked about how the job description is written. I think for us, one of the things that we add to that is that we post a salary and we post the benefits. Mm -hmm. And I know you guys do some of that stuff publicly as well. And the reason that's equity is because um, people of color may not have access to the networks that 
our white counterparts do. So they may not know what they can negotiate or where they have access to. Right. And so then we get, and I know you and I talked about it. You didn't mention this. Um, Mm -hmm. You talked about interviewing with different people from diverse backgrounds. And one of the reasons that's really important to us, and we always debrief afterwards, all of our employees are trained to interview is because a candidate of color may not show up in a traditional, okay, that's a quotation, traditional polished way. Yep. Polish being code for yep, I know appealing to white I, people, I, right? I know, I know what you mean, yep. And so being able to counteract how people show up by having those diverse perspectives is really important. Yeah. And then you talk about the onboarding process, and there's a couple of things in what you said. One is the buddy system allows to minimize those feelings of isolation. Right. In predominantly white spaces, it's helpful for that person to also be a, a person of color, right. I would say. And then the second piece is in nonprofit, I don't know about in general, but in nonprofit specifically, we have an issue where resources are not put into developing leadership of color, yeah. specifically at the same rate as white leadership. Right. And so having something like professional development for your staff becomes a really appealing thing for longevity if you want to make sure that they're set up for success in the future. Yeah. And so, like, you said a lot. So I just wanted to unpack <laughs> I, so what you said. You, you unpacked it very, very well. Because I, I do, I talk about this, like, every organization has this. And the equity piece is built into that. But for us, again, yeah, it comes very <clears throat> sort of natural. And so you did a great job of unpacking it. So thank you. Ozzy a former board member. And I think you can kind of hear <laughs> some of our Yes, we've had a lot of conversation on this and many other topics. But yeah, I mean, I think most recently we spent some time talking about that growth, growth path. And I take for granted the fact that we are a completely diverse agency and how that's sort of built into, like we don't even think about it because it's just... Mm-hmm. who we are right and so thank you for <laughs> for me, unpacking that to me this is one of the pitfalls of the equity officer because you tend to think of this role having yeah it's that person's responsibility as opposed right. to all of our responsibility right. right and so one of the things we haven't explicitly we've alluded to but i wanted to just name today is some of the harms potential harms i shouldn't say they are but potential harms that have come out of these equity <sighs> initiatives like there is potential harm in just having an equity officer and thinking that's the end of it. Right. Or there's so much pressure on that person. It's just not even right. And that person can't, is not in every single conversation to ensure that microaggressions are happening. They're not right. looking at every single policy. They don't have time to look at every single policy. Right. 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 I think another one that you and I previously talked about is some of the performative nature of some of the equity initiatives, Mm -hmm. what have you seen in that space? And what would you call performative? Why don't we start there? Yeah, so I I have a different, because the context that we were talking about last time was was around what? I think we were talking, we were talking about this piece about just doing statements and a couple of workshops and that was it. Uh Oh, yeah, 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 okay. And then money being given towards that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, right, so it feels like, like there's a checklist, right, of things that need to be done in order to be considered sort of in this, to be considered or placed in this equity place or or thinking about it from a DEI standpoint. The, and I'm going to give you a really, a really interesting example because we were, I just had this conversation with someone else, but, but so, right. So what we've seen is, right, you put out the statement, it's kind of a checklist, right? And then you have your 
sort of best practices in DEI, right? All fine. You typically have, you know, obviously the DEI role, and there's always a committee. And then I think one of the things we're seeing, and this has, has already been there, but it's growing, but there's power in this one that I'm about to tell you. These are the ERGs, the employee resource groups. Oh, yes. And so depending on the organization, those are really, really powerful in terms of painting the situation internally for most organizations in a much clearer way, right? Because they're the voices. There's a, you know, you'll have a black employee resource group. There's a Latino employee mm -hmm. resource group, gay, lesbian, I mean, you name it. And so typically we've seen these organizations were sort of born out of historically what handles sort of the key initiatives around, as an example, Latino so they would holidays and celebrations. Oh yes. So they would they would they would so the the his Latino ERG is going to put this program together for Cinco de Mayo. The Hispanic ERG is going to put this event for Hispanic Heritage Month, right? The Black Resource Group is going to put this event together for Black History Month. What about the rest of the year, right? So you think about like it very performative in that sense, though those groups have certainly like. I think they've grown in terms of power within a lot of organizations because they're 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 just bigger. I think also the after George Floyd, it gave them I, I, most of these groups even a, a, a platform, a stronger platform. So they, I think now in most organizations, they're not necessarily performative. I think they actually serve a really good function. We work with a lot of them now, where they're also a cultural filter to some of the work, right? Mm -hmm. So just think about some of the things that they're producing has to go through the Latino, if they're producing something in Spanish or something that's targeted to this segment, it's going through that filter for cultural sensitivity, like all of those things, mm -hmm. you're seeing it for, for, for most of those groups. So, so, you know, there are those things that, you know, still exist sort of as performative, but I, that last one on the ERGs, I've seen some really good progress which is great because I think there's more, I think the, the thing there that's different is there's more empowerment over having a voice internally and then actually being heard, right? Because there's, as, a, as one person, it's hard, right? Mm -hmm. But now you have an ERG of 100 Latinos in an organization, 2,000, you know, black ERG group in an organization. There's, there's just more power in that. I mean, strictly in the numbers, right? So anyway, all that to say is, you know, we're still seeing a lot of the, the, the performative, I was going to use a nasty word, but performative crap that still happens because they feel like you need to do it and you have to check the, the checkbox. But we're also seeing actually some good traction in, in some other areas. I want to highlight why this is performative because we, I chuckled when you said it, right? And so for, uh, for me, what comes up when I hear, for example, Latino group putting on Hispanic Heritage Month, right, right? Right. I was like, I could give a fuck about a Hispanic Heritage Month for my company if there's still a discrepancy in how Latinx people are paid versus yeah. white employees, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fix your pay scale. Right. That's that's true equity. That's equity, right? Make your pay scale public. Let these groups look at it, and that that's equity. And so when we talk about performative, it's not about the celebration's fun. I'm not going to turn on some free tacos or whatever it is that they decided <laughs> to put on. Some people says I'm definitely there, but that's not when we're, when we're talking about equity, mm -hmm. that's not real equity. It's what looks good. And so I know for us, a lot of what we do is, so for example, every time I do compensation, 
I actually present the entire compensation logic to the entire all staff. And so they get to see the logic behind every single dollar and they see the agency pay scale. And so that's awesome. It, it's part of, you know, knowing where you are against your peers is part of it keeps me accountable, right? I can't secretly give somebody else I like an extra five grand for no reason. Every dollar is justified. Right. And a lot of people don't realize that when it comes, this is how these inequities are created because white people oftentimes show up more polished. They have a better network. Right. They have Always. access. Yep. And so they show up in terms of better work performance and how we like to see performance, right? And so that internal accountability to policies and processes is what I think about when I think about equity. Yeah. I mean, we had, we talk about a polished difference between, you know, someone who's considered sort of, I'm doing quotation marks, not necessarily hundred percent polished based on a, pre, a predetermined, <laughs> I was gonna say, yes, a predetermined standard. Yes. Somebody who hasn't learned how to code switch as well. Right. Exactly. So, uh -huh. so, you know, and that, a part of the reason why we have, you know, that our interview process touch different folks is exactly for that reason, right? Because mm -hmm. I don't think there's one person that sort of can or should make that determination, right? Mm -hmm. We've had some folks for sure that if somebody else interviewed them, I, they would never be hired because they absolutely didn't show up the way, for example, our traditional sort of norm mm -hmm. would be, right? And... But you have to be willing to see through that, right? Mm -hmm. And be intentional by asking the right questions, right? And we've hired some really awesome folks very recently that I'm excited about. And so I think it takes, when people are in front of folks like that, it makes them uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I saw it and it's it's a little unnerving at the same time, right? But it's it's the ability right, to see through that and ensure that you're asking the right questions to these I see these kids because these are younger kids, but Ozzy, yes. he's so old. I know I'm, I feel so old sometimes, <laughs> but but it's a bit you know you have to ask the right questions, and also I think give I think we do this, give folks an opportunity that they may not otherwise have, mm -hmm. and help them. Like you know me, I have I have a sense of duty I think to the agency, but also I've always felt a sense of duty and purpose to sort of pay it forward to the extent that I can, right? And so that never gets lost on, on me. I've been incredibly fortunate to mm -hmm. be in, like, I, in, in trying to, by the way, trying to instill that into my Gen Z girls is hard <laughs> because they have no idea the life of privilege that, like, no idea. Mm -hmm. The older one probably gets it now, but like, they're, they're very privileged. And I acknowledge that. And so, you know, how do I, as a, as a CEO of an agency sort of contribute to this idea of upward mobility for people of color. And it takes sometimes taking a chance on someone that you would otherwise, right? Like being intentional about that. And I've had conversations with my team about why are we doing that? He's not a hundred percent qualified. And sometimes the answer is because I said so. <laughs> Which, thank God, I could do that as the CEO, yes. and I'm granted yeah. that privilege. Mm -hmm. And I understand that that's not always the case, but there's a sense of duty that never sort of has gone, will never go away with, with that. And I may be wrong. He may not work out, or she may not work out, or they may work out. But 
that kid will get a, there's be value in that time that that person is here to just have them explore a work environment that, you know, they've never seen. Honestly, they've never been in a work setting like this. Right. Had no idea what it's like to sit at a desk. Mm-hmm. Like things that I wish somebody would have done for me, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 then providing allyship and support, right? You know, I have a open door, literally an open door policy. People could come in and talk to me about whatever, and sometimes they do become a psychiatrist at times. <laughs> Not. I think that's part of our job. It is actually. part of our jobs and the roles that we do. But uh, yeah, you know, I that I didn't even think I answered your question on that. I didn't even want to start on that, but you know, I think I'm just. It, it goes to the, the idea of equity and leveling the playing field, and I'm going to do my part, period. I think something that I know that you do that you, you haven't talked about. So you talk about oh, no. giving a person a chance, right? And so I'm going to use the example of what I see. So it's not just giving the person a chance, but like, how do you set them up for success yeah. every single day in the workplace, yeah. right? So how do you help them navigate spaces that they're not used to? How do you interfere? Like, I know I've had situations where I've hired employees who are not as polished and they're being perceived to be incompetent. Because, right. And so how do you challenge the person who is challenging them, right? Like, hey, those questions may not be appropriate or you didn't ask so-and-so that question. Why are you asking this person, right? Right. And so like these microaggressions, when you hire that individual, these microaggressions are also going to show up for this individual because the world is not prepped for that. And you have to support them through that process. And I was like, I know this is a thing that you do because you've done it for me, Mm -hmm. but you didn't bring up in this space because that's part of setting them up for success yes, right yes yeah i think and this is another and i so you you're having a way of bringing stuff out that i keep like i sort of take for granted and assume that this happens everywhere right <laughs> but i think and this is something that i think i i personally have done always right is and sometimes i don't do it right right but i try is ensuring that 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 you're confident and that you are the right fit for for that role right mm-hmm. certainly there's learning that needs to be had in every position right and it kind of goes back to the imposter syndrome trying to eliminate that from these kids because i know they have it because i could see it and having them as an example attend a meeting that we would never have someone that junior attend but having them attend anyway and having them have a speaking part, even though they don't sound 100% polished. And putting them in front of the client so the client could see that. And being, what's the word here, vulnerable to the comments that the client might have on that particular, mm-hmm. you know, teammate that made a comment about whatever, right? That wasn't super polished. This, I'm talking about all real stuff that mm-hmm. has happened. And so... There's so much value in that kid being in that freaking meeting that I can't tell you how happy he was. Mm -hmm. Almost broke my heart in happiness. Yeah. Because that's the type of stuff that, like, you have to support. And it's hard to put that sort of in systems and processes, but it's being intentional about putting, putting them in situations where they can, they just would never be in, right? I would never... 
I didn't get to be in front of a client for like years, like literally in front of a client. Oh yeah, no, I throw people in front of people stuff all the time. Right. And one of the things I try to do too, because I know how intimidating you can be, is like when I throw you in the situation, I prep you right. right for it, but also know that you're coming with my full support. Right. If you mess up, it's okay. I got yes, you. somebody's got to. Yes, I got you. Yeah. It's fine. Right. You, I might yell at you afterwards just because you need to learn how to do it better. But right. like, no, I got you. Right? right. And so that's the thing too, like allowing people to enter spaces without fear that they're going to correct. Their yeah. seat at the table i was just gonna say that yes allowing them to even fail and that's okay yeah because they're gonna be they know that they have just the support and so yeah it was you know then i have tons of examples of this but that happens over and over but i i think organizationally you have to be really intentional about that yes like you have to have the intention otherwise it just and the right people in those roles quite mm -hmm. frankly to be able to like actually make that like you could make that change but other people in organizations sometimes can't make sort of those calls and those decisions that's actually a large large part of what i do is talk to people about how they how can do i can do it yeah. yeah because i can't be everywhere all the time so how do you create opportunities and choices for everybody is like a huge part of our just ongoing conversation obviously we don't get this right all the time right but you said this a little bit like the few times that you do get it right it's just nice to see because it i don't think i'd be where i'm at today without people doing it for me yeah and that's what that's how i learned right yeah i mean i, I think i've been and i said this earlier i've been fortunate enough and you probably have to you have in every stage of my career i've always had one or two sort of allies that have that have sort of been there and were a little bit of my crutch and helped me like no you can do this i'm like no i can't yes you can yes. no i can't do this yes you can and so i've had a cut several of those and they've all been it's just interesting that they've all been people of color or women interestingly enough yeah <laughs> no i i think this is funny because this is a reoccurring theme that comes up in the podcast every single person talks about like it was a community that got them to their leadership position. There's no such thing as one, any one of us doing it without us, with some without another one of us. No, mm -hmm. no, no. I I agree with that. We, yeah, and I I think being in the positions that we're in, I think again going back to a little bit sense of duty. I think, and I do this also with other friends of of Paco or and of mine who started businesses mm -hmm. and try to be a mentor to them so that they don't mess up the way I messed up, first of all. Oh, I've gotten fired multiple times. <laughs> right. But like having, like being just someone that you can talk to, right? Having more of this allyship because I've had it and I know the impact that, that, that has, that has had on my, my life, my career. I actually wouldn't be here without that kind of support. I think we just, we have to, and we, I think as a, as a, as a whole, I don't think we do a really good job of it to this day. I think we could do a lot better and be more supportive in that in that sense. I don't think it happens honestly as much as it should. And I, that you know, ask me why, and I don't know why. I don't know the answer to that <laughs> that one. I just I, I think it just doesn't happen as as much as you see it on the other side. So I'm actually gonna like pivot a little bit in okay. the next question and just ask you what advice would you give to young professionals like this is a really interesting time to enter and be young in the workforce what advice would you give young professionals wow 
I know. I just threw that out of, we haven't talked about this at all. No, no, no. It's, it's okay. <laughs> what advice would we give young professionals? Particularly for it, young professionals of color. Yeah, young, young professionals of color. That's a great, great, great question. I think the, the one thing that I would say would be, number one, I think they're, to your point, they're entering a super interesting sort of work environment, number one. I think there's a lot more freedom of choice in terms of the roles that you can actually do. I, you know, take time to find your passion. I think the other part is, I think the power, the power that we actually have in sort of the broader mainstream, we talk about that when we talk to clients, but just the actual sort of your own value, understanding your own value and your own contributions, your own, like your background, like all of that has has significance and it has value in the com in, in conversations and in the office or wherever they happen, right? Whether you went to, you know, University of Illinois, you know, Harold Washington College, sort of indifferent, but understanding the value that sort of you bring to the table. I think the other thing, the biggest thing that, and this is honestly speaking, and understanding my daughters and sort of where their heads are. And there's definitely this huge rumbling of just sh social change mm -hmm. across the board that I think they're going to continue to feel in ways what we're not even thinking about right mm -hmm. now. I'm excited about that. Which I was just going to say that really is exciting. Just I shared with you my daughter's eighth grade science project, toxic masculinity and its impact on gender roles. So just think about that for a second. But they, that this generation, I think, the Gen Z generation, and then the one coming up, just I think they Gen Alpha, I think is the term. I think is the term. Don't quote me on that. Uh, I mean, we're probably going to change the world for sure in ways where, you know, I don't think we even understand yet just because of their... The transparency through which they live their lives, number one, and then the impact of information that they've had and their upbringing in the context, the context, right, of their upbringing. So think about, especially people of color, right? Trump. Yeah. Uh -huh. Think about George Floyd, uh -huh. Black Lives Matter. Think about Me Too movement. Uh -huh. Think about now, now we're in a not, not we, but there's a war. Those are major, major and when you think and of- the whole pandemic. Sorry, and I missed one of <laughs> the biggest part is the, the pandemic, actually. So like all of those things combined have, sh have shaped in a lot of sense, their, their sort of will shape their identity to a certain extent and how they see the world moving forward. So, you know, the fact that my daughter could have, could duke it out, with other folks on Black Lives Matter is like on like she's 13, sorry, 14 years old. And like having those conversations at that age mm -hmm. is incredible. Like it's incredible that she's they're actually talking about that in a way that's like meaningful and progressive and and looking for real change and you know not falling with, she called me out on gender stereotypes and, and me fulfilling gender stereotypes. I'm like, good for her. <laughs> time out. Like, give me a break. But like, when I talk about transparency and calling people out, like, that's like, this is what, what we're going to get. And it's going to make 
I don't know who, I think we might be boomers by then, but I don't know that we're going to be the, the boomers of now, but like, <laughs> we're going to be the boomers of now. Yes. So I, so I don't think we're going to be as, I'm sure there's going to be a large part of population still going to, it's going to suck, you know, because this is not what they want, but I feel like the impact that that generation is going to have on politics, on social justice, the environment, all of those things is going to be profound. So, so what advice would I give them? Right. So I think can, I think that the, this idea of transparency and understanding your value, understanding the voice that you have is powerful. I think there's also, there's going to be great value from our, at least I'm going to speak from marketing standpoint for Gen Zers with the type of background and social media sort of savviness and that transparency that they're able to navigate sort of completely natively right so think about that like i don't i'm sure me and you struggle with all the, up with that. no and so that is completely normal right and so there's going to be value in that in the marketplace like in jobs like there those these i mean we, we don't really think about it skills but like we have a social media coordinator and we're going to hire someone to just manage tiktok so just think about that as an example like right so how you how and we're i don't know freaking TikTok. Neither do I. Neither do you, but that generation knows it like the back of their hand. So, so, you know, I, it just, there's a whole different set of skills that that generation is going to have that we don't necessarily want <laughs> or know how to use. That's going to be super valuable in just in the sort of marketplace and quotation marks. Well, you know, this, we have a Gen Zer managing our social media That's, and this podcast. And this podcast, right? Because if it was me and you, we wouldn't. We would have been we, able to turn the mic We would on. have had little, little tape recorders, <laughs> the old school tape recorders. We took it back. I might have recorded on my phone, Ozzy. Give me a little bit of credit. Well, I took it a little bit further. But yeah, I'm, I'm like you, I'm very hopeful for this next generation. And I think the, the, the last, I think the last piece of advice that I would say and we talk about it in, internally is bring, and you guys have heard me say, we've talked about this, just bringing your authentic self kind mm -hmm. of everywhere. Like you don't need to pretend to be somebody you're not. Right. Period. I completely, I advise people that all the time. I'm like, that's not the workplace for you if you can't do that. No, if that's what you're, yeah, don't, don't. Authentically, go. your better self though. Yes, exactly. Not the me at 7 a.m. No, your best self. How about that? <laughs> your best self. Okay, so just kind of wrapping things up, do you have any other closing remarks you want to make? No, just thank you for the, the I've never done a podcast, but this has been really, really fun. You know, keep up the great work that you're doing. I know that we talked about your role within the organization. I felt like I was a board member there. Bessie is a is my legacy there because I was part of the That's team. That was a lot of pressure. There was a lot of pressure. <laughs> no, there's a, you have no idea when you talk about pressure on us. Like if you didn't work out, it would have set everything back. Like, it would have been it would have been not good. But I'm inspired by what you have done there because I had my there was times where I'm like, oh no. This, she's gonna freaking quit and leave, and I think you've been you've managed to just kind of turn the organization around. So, major kudos to you. Thank you, and thank you for hosting us for the podcast today. Yes, you're welcome. To keep up with everything going on at Alternatives, or to donate, you can visit us at our website, alternativesyouth.org. You can also follow us at Alternatives Inc. on Instagram or at Alternatives Youth on Facebook.
Broken Office Chair is hosted by Alternatives' Executive Director, Bessie Alcantara. It's produced and researched by me, Catherine Best, with special help from Monica George, Teronica Boone, and Dave of Mixed Media. Thanks for listening.